Lord, as we look at a portion of your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would be giving us your insight into the things you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember last week we started our time in John 2 with a story about a snake. Uh, The moral of the story was you couldn't trust, shouldn't trust a snake. This morning I want to start with a brief story about a dog. And uh, then we'll get into John 3. There, uh, once long ago and far away, there was a wealthy old gentleman lived in his manor outside a small village, and he had no family, no family left, no heirs, no children. He didn't want to end his life lonely and alone. He wanted to have a son and an heir. So he went into the local village, and he looked around for a suitable boy, someone to adopt and bring into his family. There weren't that many boys in the village anyway, and and he couldn't find one that was suitable for his purposes. And so, in despair, he started walking out of the village, headed back towards his home. And There on the edge of town, in the trash pile in the dump, he saw a dog scrounging around in the dump looking for scraps of food, and a light went on in his head. And he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll adopt that dog. I'll adopt Fido. I'll take him home, and I'll make him my son and heir. I'll groom him, and I'll change him, and he'll... He'll become the one that becomes my family member. So he took Fido home, renamed him Freddy. And he had the servants make up the best bed in the house, softest comforter, nicest pillow. But Fred wasn't interested. He slept on the floor instead. He had the servants make the best food and set the table, you know, with all the right silverware and all. But Fred was a beast at the table. And worse than that, he was worthless for conversation afterward. The old man had the finest, richest clothing made for little Freddy. But Freddie would roll around in the dirt and the dust so that you couldn't even see the colors that they were made of anymore. And kind of the coup d'etat here was that uh, housebroken and Freddie didn't go together, and he would soil the carpets, and the old man couldn't walk around in his slippers safely. And you know, after he gave this a lengthy trial, he gave up, and he turned Freddie Fido loose, and Fido jauntily jaunted back down into town, went back into the trash pile, and was happy as he was before. And The old man scratched his head and just wondered why it hadn't worked out. Think about that as we read in John chapter 3 this morning. It's kind of a famous passage because of uh, this visit at night by this guy called Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him, Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, without doubt, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. 
So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, Well, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Well, let's go back to the beginning here. Verse 1, who is this Nicodemus guy anyway? Verse 1 says he's a Pharisee, and that means he's a leader of the Jews. And this meant a few things at least. Financially, he was probably well-to-do. You didn't climb these ranks if, if you weren't. But socially and politically, he was in the highest ranks or the highest echelons, if you will, of the nation of Israel. He was important. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, as if Nicodemus, even among the Pharisees who were at the top of the social heap, was at the top of their heap as well, the teacher. So socially, politically, this was an important person, financially probably secure, and recognized through Israel as an important leader and teacher. Uh, not for these reasons, but I confess right away, Nicodemus is a guy I like. I, I take uh, affection to right away for several reasons. Uh, the first is that although Jesus does at least mildly rebuke Nicodemus in this passage, Nicodemus is unique among the Pharisees and the leaders of his day. Nicodemus takes the time and the trouble to personally visit Jesus and ask him, basically, who are you and what are you about? He's unique in this. Now, Pharisees and Sadducees, the other religious party, they would often send people to trap Jesus, but this isn't a trap. This is Nicodemus asking, hey, who are you? What are you about, basically? So he's honest and he's forthright and he's willing to come up and ask questions face to face. Another reason I like him right away is he calls Jesus rabbi. Now, we often lose the importance of this, the thought of the importance. You know, a rabbi in those days, that would be the equivalent, essentially, of us calling someone doctor. That is, these rabbis were officials. They had gone through the religious instruction of their day. They had jumped through the appropriate hoops, the way we would academic circles today, before they would be called a rabbi. They were officially recognized leaders. Jesus is an unknown quantity from Galilee, the wrong side of the tracks in Israel, and yet Nicodemus addresses him in a, in a title of respect and honor. He shows humility right from the start and honors Jesus by calling him rabbi, even though Jesus did not have the credentials by official standards to be called rabbi. The other reasons I like Nicodemus, we'll see him later in John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, here's a meeting of the Pharisees. And basically at this point, they're out to get Jesus. They're out to get him. They've just asked that he be arrested. And the guys come back who were sent to arrest him. And they say, we've never heard anyone speak like this before. And the Pharisees are indicting them. And they're saying, we've got to get this guy. And Nicodemus speaks up. Here's one man against the tide. And he says, hey... The law of Moses does not allow us to condemn a man before we've heard him out. He's willing to stand against the tide. In fact, not only that, but when he shows up again in chapter 19, 
Jesus' cold, dead body is hanging on a Roman cross. He's been crucified. He was indicted before that by the Pharisees, of which Nicodemus is a party to, but not of the crucifixion. When Jesus is dead, hanging on the cross, and all that's left is to bury him, anyone who had hopes in him, they're being buried also. When there's nothing to gain for Nicodemus, he joins timid, fearful Joseph of Arimathea and claims the body of Jesus and prepares it for burial and puts it in Joseph's tomb. So here's a guy who's willing to stand against the tide. This was going to cost him, you can imagine, if you take sides against every one of your peers, you are the odd man out. He was willing to do that not once but twice in John's gospel. So I confess, I like him right from the start. It says he comes to Jesus at night. Sometimes we're not sure how much to make of what Scripture says or doesn't say, but he comes at night could mean a couple things. He came when he knew he could get Jesus alone. Sometimes you and I may make phone calls at night because we know dinner's over and we can catch someone. It may mean that. Or it may mean that he wanted this to be secret, that he was going at night because this was a time that he could go and meet Jesus and yet not be seen, keep the meeting as private as possible. Now, even if it is the second, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. He doesn't know much about Jesus. He's trying to find out. Maybe he wants to avoid unnecessary embarrassment. Not, not a problem. He's coming, which is the main thing, and he happens to come at night. And after this nice, respectful greeting, Nicodemus says, hey, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. We're from God. Jesus just brushes by this respectful greeting, this humble beginning. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. I think Nicodemus kind of had it polite beginning. We'll kind of talk back and forth, and I'll feel this guy out, and Jesus just blows right past it. And this is not untypical of his interaction with folks, especially in John's gospel. They say one thing, and he appears to go off on this tangent to something entirely different. Nicodemus, no doubt, he's going to be in a process. He'll ask him maybe important theological questions. And Nicodemus, excuse me, doesn't even get the chance to ask the questions. Jesus answers before he can even ask. He says, Nick, you've got to be born again. By the way, the, the Greek for born again, the again part, uh, is typically translated not again but above. In fact, if you use your concordance, um, you can look this up. It seems an odd translation here. I'm not sure why the translators have gone to the term again, but typically the, the, the term would be translated from above. He says, Nick, you've got to be born again or born from above. To this, uh, this off-the-wall comment by Jesus, Nicodemus doesn't know what to make of this. He responds with some confusion, as we probably would too. How can a man especially an old man like himself. How can an old man be born again? He can't enter into a, his mother's womb a second time, can he? Nicodemus is no simpleton, and, and we know that he's not actually thinking that somehow he's got to be reborn physically through his mother, but he's just verbalizing. What does this mean? Certainly it doesn't mean this, Jesus. What does it mean? Jesus' response in verses 5 through 8, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be afraid. Don't 
marvel, don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. The phrase here, born of water and the Spirit, in verse 5, commentators take a few options on what this means. I think the simplest is probably the one to be preferred here, which is that um, you must be born of water would mean that's like the first birth, the uh, fleshly birth. You must be born of water, and the emphasis would then be and of the Spirit, just as in the next verse, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first birth. That which is born of the Spirit is the second birth or the birth from above. Physical birth, birth by the flesh through the waters of the womb, as it were, prepare you to live as a subject of this world. The problem with that, of course, is this world is at odds with its maker. Later on, Jesus will say his kingdom and God's kingdom is not of or a part of this world or this world system. So that a water birth, a fleshly birth, only makes us fit to live in this world separated from God. That's all we're fit for. So Jesus says to see God's kingdom or to be fit for heaven and God's presence, it requires no minor overhaul. It requires a recreation, a new birth, a new birth from above. If you, uh, you could conduct an informal survey. I've talked to lots of people about Christ over the years and you can ask someone, if you died today, will you go to heaven? Most people will say something like this, I hope so, or yes, I think so. And if you say, why will you go to heaven? Why will God allow you to heaven? The most common answer is something like this, well, I've tried to be a good person and live a good life. In other words, in the grand scales of the universe, I think the good in my life outweighs the bad at least a little. So I think God will let me in. And of course, the answer fails to come to grips with the reality of the deficiency of all that we are and therefore all that we do. God is not, is not out to make us better. And no extreme makeover is extreme enough to recreate us in his image. There's no cosmetic overtones that can adequately cover the wrecked moral visage that we have by our first fleshly birth. In fact, Paul, speaking somewhat to this subject later in Romans 7, will say, in me, that is in my flesh, in the nature that I have by my first birth on earth, Paul says, depending on your translations, it's phrased various ways, no good thing dwells. Good does not dwell. You know when it says of God in James 1.17, there's not a hint or shadow of deficiency in God? Well, we flip that on its head in Romans 7. In us, there's not a hint, Paul says, of goodness. In my flesh, in the character that I have through my first birth or creation, there is, Paul says, no good thing. This speaks both to actions and to motives. You know, we could say, well, this person lives an exemplary life. But when it gets down to motives, God says that even the best of actions is still underwritten by inadequate motives. There's no good thing in us. 
So Jesus goes to the heart of the issue in this short night talk with Nicodemus and says, Nick, for you, even you, the leader of Israel, in other words, on the outside, if anyone's going to heaven, Nicodemus is going there, right? Because he's a good guy, he's called rabbi, he's a teacher, socially, politically, financially, he's at the top of the heap. But he says to this person that everyone else in Israel would think, surely they'll go to heaven. He says, Nick, if you're not born again, you're not getting into the kingdom. You won't see it. And getting into the kingdom, because of the rest of the passage, seems to be synonymous or equivalent with coming into eternal life. We don't have to make two separate things here. Because Jesus closes at verse 14 and 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is seeing God's kingdom, if you will. Related to this total transformation or total replacement, if you will, for us to be able to get into heaven or gain eternal life, let me read to you a couple passages that Paul mentions later on. In 1 Corinthians 15, in a passage about the resurrection, Paul says, he's speaking initially about Adam, but this, this covers all of us. He says, the first man is from the earth, earthy. You remember in Genesis, God makes Adam out of dust. He makes Adam out of the stuff of this earth. And Adam's life, especially after the fall, is characterized by this earth. It's earthy. And we, by our birth, are earthy. He says the second man, the second Adam, Jesus, is from heaven. He is heavenly. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. In in other words, we are like our parents, who were like their parents, who were like their parents, back to Adam, a creature made of dust, fit for life on the earth. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Those who have gained this new birth, this new life, Paul says, are now characterized by the heavenly life, by the second Adam's life. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Sometimes we look at ourselves or each other and don't think we look much like a heavenly creature, and oftentimes we do not. But Paul says, for those of us who have gained this entrance into the kingdom by faith in Christ and new birth, he says, just as surely as you look like your parents, either physically or morally, you're going to look like Jesus. In fact, John, the author of this gospel, says later, when you see him, you'll be like him. The transformation will be complete. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. There's something there that wasn't there before. It's not an old life improved. It's not an old life made better. It's a new life. And then in Galatians 6.15, Paul says, Circumcision is meaningless, and uncircumcision is meaningless. What's important is a new creation. It's not whether ethnically or by birth you're a Jew or a Gentile. The bottom line question is, have you experienced a new birth? Are you a new creation? So that for sinners like Nicodemus, or you, or me, there's nothing less than a total transformation that's needed for us to be fit for God's presence and kingdom. Nick says a second time, he says, first, how can this be? How can a new birth occur? And then he says, 
well, how does this new birth work? How does it take place? How does the transformation occur? When Jesus answers this, frankly, he does not clear up the muddy waters. His answer is in itself a bit of an enigma. He says, Nick, it's like the wind. He said, you've got to be born again by the Spirit. Okay, and Nicodemus, how does that work? Well, he says, it's like the wind. In other words, don't worry too much about it. Nick, you don't know when the wind's going to blow. You don't know where it's blowing from or where it's blowing to. You just know when it's there because you feel it or you see it. There's an old poem that says, Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you, yet when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. So you don't know when it's coming, where it's coming from, where it's going to. You only know when it's there. And Jesus says it's like that with the new birth. How many times have you heard, maybe, that someone you knew in the past had become a Christian and you would have thought there's no way that person would ever come to Christ? Maybe someone thought that about you or me. No way would they ever become become a Christian. But it's like the wind. We don't know where it's blowing from. We don't know where it's blowing to. You know, we might pick out a a person that looks moral, they look like they've got their act together, and we would think we'll present the gospel to them, and surely they would become a Christian. Not so. Jesus says it's like the wind. You and I do not control the wind. We don't control new birth in ourselves or in others. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, we will pray specifically for various people to hear the gospel and to believe What you'll find the emphasis in Scripture is on, though, is on us throwing out the seed, the gospel, like like seed, like the farmer, like Jesus in the parables. We don't know which soil the seed will grow in. We don't know if it's that person's life who looks like they have it together or the wretch by the side of the road. We have no idea. God just says for us to scatter the seed over soil that looks good and over soil that doesn't look good. See, we don't know. We have no idea. God's the one at work producing that transformation and bringing about that new life. So when Nicodemus says, Lord, how does that happen? How can I get that? How do uh, do I plug into that? Jesus says, kind of, don't worry about it because the Spirit blows when he wills and where he wills. This goes back to verses in John 1. Uh, John had said, hey, Jesus came to his own and his own wouldn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children. That's the transformation. Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's how it happens as far as our perspective. But John says there they were born not of blood, uh, not Uh, physically from parent to child not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man it wasn't man's will man's doing that brought this about but of God it was God's spirit who brought it about faith and belief and transformation so this new birth it occurs through faith or belief and it occurs as the spirit of God blows through so to speak something that you and I Do not control. Now, Jesus chides Nicodemus for not understanding this. And you know, 
Jesus chides his own disciples in other gospel passages when they don't understand something either. He tells a parable and they say, Lord, would you explain it to us? And he says, you don't get it yet. He says that to Nicodemus. This thing about a new birth is not new in the scriptures. This is not the first time this is spoken of. Uh, And I think there's a good chance that Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 when he tells Nicodemus, you should understand this already. You should get this. Listen to these words God spoke through Ezekiel over 500 years earlier. Remember, Ezekiel is a prophet who, like Daniel, he lived in Jerusalem when it was captured. He's transferred to Babylon. During his life, the Jews in Israel are scattered. And in Ezekiel 36, God says this, I'm going to take you from the nations, gather you from the lands, and bring you back into your own land. And I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In chapter 37, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And by the way, this is when Ezekiel sees a valley full of dry, dead bones. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life. And finally, God said, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. So that even back 500 years before Jesus' incarnation, God was telling Israel, not just as a nation, but as individuals, that a time would come when on His initiative, by His doing, He would do this transforming work in them. He doesn't ask them to do any of this. He says in each instance that He would sovereignly, by His initiative, reach in, and take out that heart of stone, that unbelieving, evil heart, and put in a heart of flesh. And don't confuse flesh here in Ezekiel with flesh in John. He meant a heart that would be sensitive to God and to God's things. He said he would breathe on his initiative, his spirit within them, and he would bring about a new life in them that they didn't do. So I think when Jesus chides Nicodemus, he's thinking back. There's other passages. Jeremiah, the New Covenant, chapter 31, says essentially the same thing, which God said, I'm going to breathe in you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new life in you by my doing, sovereignly. There will be a new life where there was an old, this old sinful heart of stone. I'm going to put a new sensitive heart in. So this was not new. This thought that God would do this radical heart surgery, heart transplant. This was not a new thought. Most of us here are old enough to remember uh, the days of Jimmy Carter. Do you remember when he ran for president? 
uh, he made the phrase born-again Christian famous or infamous in the United States when he said he was a born-again Christian. And the phrase here from John 3 became well-known in the States. And, and it kind of went through a, a life cycle, if you will, in which initially it was this distinctive evangelical Christians began asking people, are you born again? But of course, the life cycle went up and it came back down and then it became kind of a pejorative. They're a born-again Christian, meaning they're some kind of hypocrite or religious moron or whatever. But the same, that thought or that teaching remains unchanged from Jimmy Carter's days or from Jesus' days and Nicodemus or back to Ezekiel's day. This thought that God says, unless you experience a new birth, a total transformation, you will not see God's kingdom. You will not sit at his table. You will not gain eternal life apart from this radical transformation. Just like our old gentleman friend at the beginning of the story, you can't make a dog into a boy. You don't make a beast into a man. You don't groom him, trim him, clean him up. Those externals don't make a transformation that makes him fit for fellowship. It has to be this total transformation that starts from within and then is worked out. Do you remember the old story of uh, Pinocchio? Geppetto wanted a boy. And so Geppetto takes the materials he has on hand, wood, and he fashions a boy, physically what looked like a boy, a puppet. And the fairy magically gives life to the wooden boy, but he's still a wooden boy. And of course, he goes through all the adventures and the misadventures of his story, but at the end... The fairy goes the extra step, if you will, and she changes the wooden boy into a boy of flesh and blood. Then Geppetto has what he's after, a boy who's like him, whom he can have fellowship with, that he can sit down at a meal with, if you will, and talk and eat together. And when God calls us into fellowship with his son, you know, as deficient sinners, we're just not up to it. We're the dog at the table. We're the dog in the new clothes. We're the dog at the dump. We have a nature that is not fit to sit at table with him and enter into the things that are on his heart. So God isn't about cleaning us up. He's not about improving us or making us over on the outside. He's about putting an entirely new life, his life, within us. Later in Hebrews, it will say Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. And it's because there's a transformation by his doing in which we're remade into his very image. You remember John said in John 20 that he wrote this gospel so that we would believe on Jesus and in that believing we would have life in his name. When you and I talk to others about transformation or eternal life, we don't have to worry which way the wind is blowing. All we have to do is tell them about Jesus Christ and invite them to trust. And when you see that person trust Christ, and when you see the transformation within, then you know the Spirit was blowing. God was sovereignly removing a heart of stone 
and putting in a heart of flesh. We don't control that. We're not called to worry about that. We just sow the seed. And then the Spirit blows where he will. And you know, just like the sower and the seed in the parable, we're not to be concerned with whether the soil looks good or not. Rocky soil, shallow soil, deep soil, whatever. We throw it out there, and then we let God work. We let God work. It's comforting to me to remember that because God isn't just in a, in a uh, makeover in my life or yours, that when I look at myself and I see deficiencies, I can remind myself, you know, I'm not what I'm going to be. God's begun the process. Like Pinocchio, there's life in a wooden body. But the transformation isn't complete. I'm going to be like Christ. You're going to be like Christ fully when we see him. And then all that's earthly, all that's in us, the sinful nature, the deficient body that we inhabit, all that will be gone for good. We'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. We'll have a glorified body. We'll have fully a nature like his own, and we'll be ready to sit down and dine with him. It'll be a great fit. But remember, when you interact with others, and remember for your own sake, we're not getting better. In fact, the longer you walk with Christ, typically, the more fully you realize how sinful and abhorrent the old nature is. And when we talk to others, make sure we're not telling them they need to clean up their life. Uh, That is not what God's calling them to or us to. We're inviting them to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. And when they do, the Spirit of God is at work, bringing them into his kingdom, giving them eternal life, putting that new life within them. We're not inviting them to clean up their life, to go to church, to be a better person, etc. We're inviting them to trust Christ, and in the trusting, God sovereignly brings about a new life. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that when we were yet sinners, you loved us. Lord, thanks that there was nothing in us that drew your love towards us, that we didn't earn your love in the first place, and we don't keep your love by earning it now. Lord, thanks that we were sinners whom Christ died for, and that, Lord, if you didn't withhold your only Son, your uniquely begotten Son, why would you withhold any other good thing from us? Lord, might the truth that our transformation is your doing encourage us each day, especially when we see the sinful side of us still at work. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you afresh when our outward obedience uh, falls flat or when the transformation doesn't look complete. Help us to remember that you've begun the work in us, Lord. You will complete the work. And Lord, help us with a freedom and abandon because of this passage. Share the gospel with others that Lord, it's easy to throw seed out when we recognize that the work isn't really ours. All we need to do is to be faithful to share, to communicate a message, and then we watch and wait 
just like the farmer does his seed, to see your spirit at work. And Lord, thanks that you promised to use your word, that it never returns void without accomplishing your purpose so that we can have confidence, no matter who we share the gospel with or in what circumstance, that your will is being accomplished. Lord, thanks that salvation from beginning to end is your doing. And we revel and we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.